0: And it's a perfect little basket to put all of your woes in because you don't have to work on any of the underlying conditions. You're trans and they'll fix it with surgery and hormones. Easy peasy. You know, that's the, the frustrating part is it, is it absolves everybody from guilt too. David Bell talked about this, the clinician from Tavistock is that parents buy into it because they don't have to look at what they might've done in the past to lead their kid to this point. They, they can just go, oh yeah, they're trans. Okay, well, let's fix it. It, it just absolves everybody from any investment in the actual underlying conditions.
1: I mean, I've always thought that it seemed like an addiction. I've always... It seems so obvious that that's what it is. And unfortunately, it's like this magic pill being dangled for kids, that this will fix all your problems, but it won't. It will make your problems worse. And I know that friends whose kids have
2: desisted,
1: their kids are happier than they've ever been.
2: You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today I'm welcoming not one, but two important special guests from the world of ROGD parents. We have Josie from Parents with Inconvenient Truths about trans, which you might have heard of if you're a parent in that community. Uh, Josie is one of two moms who run it, and uh, they are co founders of the popular blog Parents With Inconvenient Truths About Trans, which can be found at pitt.substack.com. So, with the help of another mom, Josie compiled almost 500 stories from parents, detransitioners, therapists, and community members. 75 of those stories are in their new publication, Parents With Inconvenient Truths About Trans Tales from the Homefront and the Fight to Save Our Kids. This book will be available August 14th on Amazon. We will include the link in my bookshop soon at sometherapist.com slash bookshop. Proceeds from the sale of this book will be donated to Genspect. And then I'm also interviewing Gigi LaRue. She is the West Coast Intake Coordinator for Our Duty Group, which was founded in, in England by Keith Jordan. Gigi has done incredible activism on behalf of parents, perhaps just like you, listeners, advocating for the needs of detransitioners to uphold their stories and to uh, advocate for parental rights and child protection. So I know many listeners of this podcast are themselves parents who are worried about their kids. Um, you're, And if not, uh, or if so, you've probably read some of the stories at Pitt. You might be familiar with Josie and Gigi's work. Um, And as well, many of my counseling and consulting clients are uh, parents who are worried about their loved ones as well. So these are are very pertinent, time-sensitive discussions that are also deeply emotional, deeply personal for people. So Josie and Gigi, thank you for the work that you're doing and for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's talk about how you got into this work. Uh, Perhaps we can start with you, Gigi. How did you end up working with Our Duty?
0: Um, I, I, my story has yet to unfold, so I'm not going to elaborate on that, but it's personally affected our life and my life. And in the process, I realized this is not just about our family, but many, many, many families all over the world. And I found Our Duty, and um, Keith asked us to start at a U.S. branch. So we did that about three years ago, and we went from a couple parents a month to almost a parent a day. Um, and that's just on the West coast. The East coast is having a similar intake.
2: And so when a parent joins your group, what is that intake process like?
0: Well, they can register on the website, which is our slash USA. And, um, the email will go to whatever side of the country they, they feel that that is the closest. And then we will have a zoom call and I will, you know, we try to assess what people need. Um, People come to us from all different aspects. There are people whose children have been socially transitioned uh, when they were younger and they haven't done anything permanent, but now they want to change their, their course. There are people whose husbands have transitioned and are affecting the marriage. There are lots of different people, and, and most of them are coming at this with teenage kids who suddenly come out as trans or non-binary, and they just need information and support that's not geared towards medical intervention. That's our main priority: is to give people non-medical support um, to help their kids manage this.
2: And uh, what are some of the next steps that you uh, find for people who are struggling that reach out to you?
0: Well, we do our best to match them with local therapists, um, many of whom have been reaching out to us as we've grown, because that seems to be the number one issue: is finding a therapist that won't um, interpret the, the laws in the various states as being abjectly affirming. I know California has the anti-fraud. Uh, anti-therapeutic fraud prevention act. And I think that's been interpreted by many as being um, an inability to discuss this with a minor client. And that's not exactly what the law says. The law says you can't advertise that you will convert someone out of their gender identity or sexuality, and you can't charge money and say, I'll charge, if you pay me, I will, I will, you know, convert your child out of this belief. That's not what, that's what the law is preventing people from doing therapists, but it's not preventing therapists from discussing this with their clients because that's really what the issue is, is what's underneath this. And I think finding a therapist that's willing to examine comorbidities, which are often autism spectrum disorder, depression, anxiety, OCD seems to be hugely uh, uh, prevalent in this population. And I don't know if there are connections, but I think people need to manage those comorbidities first before they go down the gender path and go to a clinic.
2: Absolutely. There's a lot to dive into here. And I'm so glad that you brought up, uh, the law and how it impacts what therapists are able to do to help people. I want to dive into that further, but first let's introduce Josie. Uh, Josie, how did you come to this work?
1: Well, um, I have a son who's trans identifying, um, and, uh, I came into this work because I listened to a podcast with um, Stella O'Malley and Lisa Marciano, and they said the the way to stop this is for parents to organize, and I heard that, and I was part of a boys' group, there were hundreds of us parents trying to get the word out about Boys are ROGD, too, and also affected because there was a study by Lisa Littman, and um, Abigail Schreier's book had come out, but it didn't mention boys at all. And we knew that our boys were affected in the same way. They came into it the same way. They were indoctrinated at school or with peers, all the same way. And we wanted to get boys on the map. We wanted people to talk about boys. So what we did is we started writing with the help of Alistair Gunn who went by the name of Angus Fox and he embedded himself he we embedded him into our boys group and he helped us write our stories and the founder of the boys group decided let's do a boys blitz and we we're going to all write uh, the parents were all going to write stories and we were going to get them to as many publications as possible. And so we did, there were about 20 of us parents and we all wrote our story and we got them published. And, um, one of the moms put her stories up on medium and they were taken down for being transphobic. And so she said to me, let's, let's start a Substack." And I said, okay. So I opened up a Substack, and we put her pieces up and I had some things that I had written, and I put those up. And then we started publishing like two days a week, just those stories. And um, then we asked other parents. We er originally thought we would just publish stories about boys. And it became like a happy accident that people actually were engaging with it. And I was tweeting it out, and people... We were like, "Whoa, this is catching on!" And when we started, we really didn't have any expectation. We just wanted to reach people to get them interested in, in the boys' topic. And then I decided, well, maybe I should ask parents of girls to write their stories. And I asked Gigi, and she did. And she was her story was the first one published on uh, Pitt. And, um, and then all of a sudden people just started sending us their, um, pieces. And then we were started asking for pieces and we got so many pieces in that we were publishing every, you know, five days a week. And, um, then we had a couple that sort of went viral and it kind of put us on the map and, We've been publishing ever since, and that was June of 2021 when we first did our first piece. I think it was June second, and and we just are we just keep publishing, and we get so much. Um, we're just trying to reach parents because, like, when this first happened to me, I couldn't find any information for six months, and I feel like if I had had This information back when I started, my life could have been completely different. And I might have been able to have the information more readily available, but I was completely blindsided. I I knew nothing. And I think we're trying to open parents' eyes who have a kid who's trans-identified and also parents in general, because you don't know if overnight your kid's going to fall into this. And so we're just trying to warn parents. We're trying to get the information out. And we're trying to help parents. And, you know, I know a lot of parents are really struggling because it's very, very ho- hard when you your child all of a sudden overnight says, I'm no longer your son or I'm no longer your daughter, of what to do. And we just feel that doing something really helps. And I know all the parents who have written and we have published it, they, they tell me how much it helped them. And just that they wrote their story and that it was published is huge for them. I mean, it really makes a difference. I remember the first time I wrote a story and it was published, I like cried. I just couldn't believe it's such a release. I couldn't believe it. And it made me feel better. So I think anything you can do for yourself to make you feel better, that's what's important. And we are making a difference. I think parents in general, we're the ones that got this going, I I feel. We're making a difference. And the more parents who get involved, whether you have a trans-identified kid or not, makes a difference.
2: So you got into this because of your son and you were connecting with other moms of so boys at a time that people were starting to talk about this issue, but noticing that it was affecting girls more than boys. So a lot of the emphasis was on girls. Let's talk about boys for a moment. Um. So, you know, going back a few decades, we basically had the, you know, the two different types of gender dysphoric males, right? The autogynephilic and the, the homosexual transsexual, and there were the, sort of the two different um, typical patterns of behavior associated with each one. Um, but uh, more parents these days, in, in situations like yours, are saying, you know, my my kid isn't necessarily fitting the typical profile. Of, of either of these. So as, as a mother of a son um, who's been talking to other parents in similar positions, what are some of the trends you've noticed with um, the young men who are becoming susceptible to the idea that they are female, that they'd be better off if they were girls, that they want to be seen as girls, or you know, oftentimes I think when we really dig down to the bottom of it, it's it's not so much that they really see themselves as the opposite sex as much as they want to escape what feels like the confines of of behaving as their own sex. So um, what, what have you been noticing about these boys?
1: Well, we did um, in the boys group, we did surveys and we found out that 85% of the boys had IQs over 130. And these were... These are basically nerdy boys. They're um, quirky boys, and they might be socially awkward. And I think it's it's a way to fit in. I think they felt uncomfortable, awkward in school. A, l- a lot of times, the boys get a cheerleader. Like a lot, of, I know for my son, and a lot of other boys, they had a girlfriend, and the girlfriend is what kind of led them to this or saying they're a girl gets them attention from girls, which is what they're really, what they really want. And it's unfortunate that they have to say they're a girl to get that attention. And, um, but we feel that all the boys are the same. Like when we tell each other their stories, we're like, well, that, that you're describing my son too. Hmm.
2: So the shy, awkward boys who don't feel comfortable or, or, or capable of performing the sort of social expectations of a boy. I mean, adolescence is a time where it's important to kind of carve out your place in society and figure out where you stand with your peers. And there's, there's a social hierarchy amongst males. There's a social hierarchy amongst females. The behaviors that compete with your peers are, are different depending on, on which one. And it sounds like these are, um, you know, to put it more bluntly, but like the beta males, right. The, the kids who, um, couldn't have been the the jocks, they wouldn't have gotten the girl. Um, and, and maybe some of them are very sensitive. Um, maybe some of them are, are artistic. Um, and, and gosh, what you described about how it's sometimes it's the girlfriends that get them into it, or it's the, female friends that maybe aren't romantic partners, but that kind of dangle that carrot of maybe I'm interested in you. Oh, look, I'll touch you. I'm going to play with your hair. I'm going to dress you up. Um, those early relationships are so formative for people, right? Your first crushes, your first kisses, um, really form your shape of, um, what the opposite sex uh, expects from you. If you are heterosexual which most people are by nature but um, or you know whoever it is you're interested in what they expect from you what's going to win their affections and you know what what you're saying really makes sense to me because i've often often observed from talking to parents in positions like yours that it sounds like their kids are getting a really unrealistic sense from somewhere you know usually the internet but oftentimes their peers do a really unrealistic sense of how the dating market truly works um and how to appeal to other people because your typical straight guy isn't going to make himself more appealing to women by having boobs, right? That's that's not <laughs> that's not normal. But when these girls, their peers are also inundated in this culture that's really rewarding and emphasizing and glamorizing trans and they're just discovering themselves too, it makes sense they would kind of hop on that bandwagon and you know end up misleading their male peers into thinking that this is really how you get the attention and affection of girls. And so it ends up being like the blind leading the blind down this um, very destructive path with no sense of what the real consequences are.
1: And I also want to say that, um, you know, these boys were brought up in the Me Too movement, the Weinstein, you know, that men are bad, men are horrible. I mean, because I know that they, they, it's not as much that they wanna be a girl as much as they just don't want to be a man because they're they don't want to be that type of man and And I don't think they're thinking things through enough to realize you could be any kind of man, and that's they're afraid they don't want to harm women, which is weird because then they end up harming women
2: absolutely. It's important. I mean, if they don't have any role models, right? Because if, if the role model of the jock or the alpha male isn't available to them because they don't have that temperament or that physical build or that aggression, and then... But also all the, all the other sort of male role models is, is like, well, you can be a creep, you can be a weirdo, you can be an oppressive misogynist or a rapist, you know, it's like, well, no thanks to, to all of that, right? And you know you're going to get rewarded instead if you identify with one of these groups that's perceived as, as victimized or oppressed or marginalized in some way. So I really mm-hmm. feel for these kids without any, anyone realistic to look up to as an example of, of who they might become. Well,
1: you know, and I said, why can't you be like your dad? What's wrong with your dad? But I think, you know, people's teenagers, I didn't want to be like my mom. I think teenagers, you know, they don't want to be like their parent sometimes. And um it also puts them in a cool class. They can be, identify as queer. And, you know, all the kids want to be queer, it seems. And, you know, if you have a girlfriend and you're both girls, then you're a lesbian couple. So that's the craziness.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of lesbian couples that identify as gay couples and gay couples that identify as lesbian couples. <laughs> um, and with boys, I mean, I think for girls too, but I'm guessing boys more, there's also the role of, of porn. Right, so we know that with with girls, um, one of the reasons it makes sense for them to want to opt out of being seen as women is the the fear of the objectification and sexual violence that they've often seen modeled from a very early age because of their early exposure to grotesque pornography. And then for the boys, I wonder if it's even more complicated because you know adolescent boys are famously horny and. And, and uncontrollably so, right? And and then this exposure to the, the type of bizarre pornography that's out there these days, I'd imagine, especially for the sensitive boy, the boy with a moral compass, the boy who's interested in social justice, the boy who doesn't want to hurt women, and then is seeing these really horrific things, that the brain chemistry there would get really wonky because things are wiring together like a mixture of arousal with disgust, fear, self-loathing, right? And all of that just kind of sets the way for these messages to come in that twist things even more when it comes to human sexuality. And like and it's so hard to talk about these things. Like how do you reach a boy and say, "Hey, hey son, let's talk about pornography and the shameful, confusing, awkward feelings you're having about your mixture of attraction to girls and self-loathing and well, I also think there's an interesting conversation to be had with boys
0: who aren't into this, where they—I know at least some of my kids have talked about this, where that's what you do if you don't have a girlfriend, and that's their right. Like there was a little bit of an entitlement of like, I get that because I don't have a girlfriend, and I'm like, it doesn't really work that way. I—I um, I, I personally think I—I um, I, I don't want to shame anybody, but I'm like, I, I think that gets transferred. What they see gets transferred into the relationship, and then you have all these unhealthy sexual activities that are being normalized. Um, which again, I think to your point, that's why a lot of girls are deciding that they don't want to be women is they don't want to be seen like that.
2: Uh, and I would raise the question Do you watch porn because you don't have a girlfriend or do you not have a girlfriend because you watch porn, right? Boys were brought up on this stuff where it's what it's where they're getting their, their modeling of how relationships are, are, are supposed to unfold or how a sexual encounter with a girl is supposed to unfold. And um, they are not learning how to approach girls at all that way. Um, and what happens to their motivation, right? The, the the harder sex is to obtain, the more motivated people are to improve themselves to obtain it. But But when your brain chemistry is being tricked into thinking that you're having a sexual experience because of pornography then the motivation to find a way to be impressive or appealing to the opposite sex goes way down. And while, you know, everyone is sort of blessed or cursed with their own particular genetic lot in terms of, you know, how they're doing in the looks department, there are certainly things a person can do to, you know, increase their charm, right? Becoming an interesting personality, making people laugh, making people comfortable, learning how to play an instrument or speak another language or play a sport. There are certainly things that any young man or young woman can do to um, make themselves more appealing. But it just seems like there's a lot of kids these days that they get exposed to porn so early, and then that becomes sort of their template. And then they're just not motivated to figure out how to, how to woo and charm one another and, and how to have real relationships.
0: Well, I also think, and look, I'm all for sex ed, but I think it's gotten so explicit that, you know, compared to what we learned, um, I, I I, you know, again, I, I wasn't ever a victim of sexual assault. So I know that we need to talk about this more than we did when, than when I was a kid, but the fumbling around in the dark part is kind of supposed to be the fun part, the unknown, you know, the part where you're exploring things that are healthy and normal. And I think they tell you so much information up front now, so young that most of these kids aren't the kids in my children's class. Nobody's having sex. Um, um, they're they're just not doing it because I think it's they know too much or something it's it's been the charm and the and the the thrill has been removed by having it explained
2: how are you sleeping sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health equally important to nutrition and exercise yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms maintain a healthy weight and metabolism protect your heart and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod And use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Have you seen these, like, consent checklists? that they give at colleges, right? Where people like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like the, you know, they're paved with good intentions, right? Like in the name of consent, in the name of preventing rape, they developed these protocols on certain college campuses that that are just mind boggling. These sort of consent checklists where young people who are thinking of having a sexual encounter, like check boxes, like I'm open to this. I'm not open to that. And while i i get what they're trying to go for there right they're i mean preventing lawsuits on campus right for one like oh well look it's that on paper but but i mean what what a bind is that right that 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 a person should be so in their head about things and premeditated and and that they're going to actually know what they want ahead of time and can put it on paper and that it's not Dependent on moment to moment context of what's unfolding between you and another person, and how they're making you feel in each and every moment.
0: Exactly, and I think that we do need to empower girls to be able to say no when they don't want to do whatever's happening anymore. That's that, and 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 let let boys know that that's an acceptable thing to do. That there's no law that says once you start, you have to finish. But I think that that to me, that the over explanation seems to be what's fueling a lot of these girls in particular and boys. But if you've noticed. Both of them seem to be embracing the stereotype of the other. So the girls that are pretending to be boys are, you know, developing a swagger and, and, and talking in deep voices. And I've noticed that the, there's a lot of super hyper femininity with, with the boys who identify as girls. It's an interesting shift. Um, like they all want what the other one has, but nobody's really getting anything that's real. They're just getting a fantasy um, that's not sustainable.
2: It's as if by by adopting the superficial traits of the opposite sex, they can escape the things that feel so burdensome about being their own sex. I really see such this grass is greener mentality. Yes,
0: but what you're getting is astroturf. And I was thinking about this on the drive up is that, you know, we have astroturf and it's not the same as grass. It might pass as grass. It might look like grass if you looked really quick, but once you feel it and touch it and smell it, it's not grass and it, it burns in the sun and it melts and it causes cancer. If there's, you know, it's like, it's, it's got all these negative side effects and it's kind of a weird analogy, but it kind of made sense to me this morning um, when I was thinking about it. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know how Josie feels, but most of the parents I talked to, um, if the medical piece wasn't hovering like a horrible cloud, um, we wouldn't care. I wouldn't care if, if people wanted to identify as whatever they want to identify, but it's the physical permanent alteration um,
2: that is the terrifying piece. Josie, your blog has published some really damning articles about this. Um, I remember there's a two-part series written by someone in the medical sciences that I think the the name of the series was something like the Trans Medical Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've covered this on our film, of course, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender Affirming Care. Um Josie, please go ahead. You were about to say something.
1: Oh, it's terrifying. Um, and I, I mean, I, you know, I begged my son. I said, you know, you can be trans. You can be whatever kind of boy you want to be. But please look at the medicalization. I don't I, I'm worried about your health. And he said he was worried too. But uh, I don't know the, there's, this huge carrot dangling for these kids and they they believe it they believe their life could be better if they they do this and you know we're all heartbroken because we want we're trying to safeguard our kids and it's very hard when it's like the whole world is saying yes do this Take, eat the per- forbidden fruit you know and the only people that are trying to stop them are the parents and we're being, they're being told we're biggest and abusive. And it's, you know, the everyone trying to separate kids from their parents is really awful. And we, instead of looking at us like we're loving because we want to stop them from harming themselves, we're looked at the opposite way.
2: And it's, it's tragic. When it comes to your own son, what medical consequences are you most afraid of?
1: Well, surgery. I think everybody's mostly worried about surgery. Well, I mean, girls, it's completely different. But for the boys, surgery, definitely. Not that he's ever said that he would, but.
2: He hasn't said that he would.
1: No, he always said he wouldn't. But I mean, I know like I hear detransitioners and they say that. They get called by the the surgeons. When do you want to schedule your, you know, surgery? Like, they get pushed. Um, and other people will say, oh, you haven't done that yet? Or whatever. I, I hear that it's really, you know, teased. And they they feel like, oh, I have to do it. Or, or like, you know, they. I think a lot of the kids... They do one thing and they're like, oh, well, I still feel the same and I don't look like it. So they keep doing one more thing. They keep going and going and going until they realize they've done too much or, you know, a lot. I've heard from detransitioners that say eventually reality catches up to you.
2: But it's this kind of alluring path that keeps you always chasing the fantasy of that next degree of affirmation, that next degree of passing. And meanwhile, um, many of these kids they're remaining very unwell. They're they're stuck stuck in behavioral patterns that are not conducive to good mental or physical health, for that matter. I mean, they're not oftentimes taking care of their own basic hygiene. Um, they're not moving forward with their lives. Right, and there's kind of this mentality that, well, I can't live my life. I can't. Take these positive steps because I'm depressed because I, of my dysphoria, right? So I have to put the dysphoria first. That's what's going to fix everything, which is a really dangerous assumption because you're spending these crucial years of your life not working on your health, your um, academic performance. Although, as you pointed out, many of these kids are very bright. Um, and, um, and instead, just kind of chasing this fantasy that when you get that next level of, of affirmation or of passing, then you'll be happy. Right, But that's, that's uh, such a shaky assumption to, to rest your moves on because then you've potentially spent years investing in this this sense of who you are and where you're going and what's going to make you happy. And then you finally get there and you've made these, these permanent life-altering decisions only to find out maybe that was never it to begin with. And society isn't helping right? by reinforcing these these myths of telling these kids that this is really who they are and that they're going to kill themselves if they don't get what they want. It's, it's so destructive.
0: Well, that's the issue with social transition is, you know, the AAP did that article uh, recently that said like 94% of kids uh, who transition socially before they reach 12 will persist. Well, of course they will. If everyone in their life is telling them that they're really something that they're not, that makes sense to me, and so how are those kids supposed to go out into the world and be, and, and just let go of that? Like they're 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 being primed to to medically transition um, if they haven't already been put on blockers. They're being primed to go onto hormones and surgical, you know, to to perpetuate this identity that they've basically lived for half their life. And so it's a very dangerous, um, not a neutral act, as we know. And I think that that's been the main concern. A lot of parents call and describe having their kids socially transitioned at school. And what are your options? And so we're trying to give people, you know, an understanding that if if it is in fact, according to the ACLU, a a a, a profound psychosocial intervention, this is cast review, and then the ACLU calls it part of a larger medical protocol, then aren't those teachers and counselors and other people's parents giving your child medical treatment without a license? Like I I know the the penalties for that aren't particularly high, but there is an, an argument to be made that it's not their place. And so I think. We need to start empowering parents to, and giving them that information so that they know, you know, this is not acceptable and there's a reason why. And here's the evidence that, that proves that.
2: I would agree with you. on. On that, Gigi. So um, I want to come back to something you said earlier uh, at the beginning when we were doing introductions, you you talked about the laws in California. And I'm glad to have you speak on this because I'm, I'm in Oregon. I'm not really familiar with what's going on in California, although I know all the blue states on the West Coast and, and many other places have these, these very misleading <laughs> laws that are confusing the general public as to to the nature of things like so-called conversion therapy. You know, something I notice about a lot of these laws is that they don't they don't actually mention the clinical diagnosis of gender dysphoria, right? They talk about people's gender identity and how, you know, how you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity, but they never specify what treatment options does this leave available for gender dysphoria because if gender dysphoria is a, you know, it's in the DSM and in order to be a psychiatric diagnosis there has to be that component of clinically significant distress or functional impairment. This person is suffering, right? You don't give treatment and we would, might disagree about what treatment entails, but it, it, you don't give any type of treatment to someone who doesn't have something that they're suffering from. That's how the medical system works. So there is this diagnosis that indicates that the person is having distress. They're having real problems in their life that are making it difficult to function. So if a person is experiencing distress, and I'm so glad, by the way, that you mentioned the high comorbidity rate with obsessive compulsive disorder, because I think we need to talk about that more because there is such similar brain patterns and behavioral patterns between the way gender disorder is currently manifesting in a lot of these youth and obsessive compulsive disorder. So here you have this pattern of distress that you're mentally attributing to the sex of your body. And then there are you know cycles of behavior, sort of obsessions, compulsions, avoidance behaviors, ruminations, uh, all pertaining to, to your, your sex or gender identity, as, as they call it then you need help with that, right? So so then you have gender dysphoria, you go to a therapist and what are your treatment options? So what what people on our side would argue is that you should be able to talk to a mental health professional about how you're suffering and get help for that suffering in the same way you get help for any other kind of psychological suffering, which is comprehensive, careful, evaluating the root causes, the, the correlations, um, what all this is tied to, you know, how this came to be, and then what's going to help you out of that most um, non-invasively, right? The least use of medical resources, the least amount of side effects, or you know, permanent results. Um, and so, this is why I'm so outspoken on this issue because this is really, just, really just a departure from how we treat any other psychological problem. So, with these laws, you said that there are some misunderstandings that people have about what the law actually says in California with regard to treatment options for gender dysphoria. Although what I'm hearing is that it doesn't actually say gender dysphoria in the law. It says something about a person's gender identity and that a therapist can't say that they will change it. Can you can you explain that?
0: Well, according to the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act, if you read it, it says no, no licensed therapist in the state of California can uh, advertise or say that they will charge money in exchange for changing someone's um, gender identity or sexuality. So That doesn't preclude someone coming from coming in and discussing it. They just can't actively say, No, if you give me enough money, I'll, I'll, they can't promise that they can change it. And and I don't think any therapist would. The whole outcome for the patient has is not contingent upon what the therapist wants. It's what's best for the patient. And I think we can agree that even with acute clinical distress with gender dysphoria, for which, by the way, there's no scale, as you probably know. So there's no way to know what's a 10 and what's a 1. Um, I think the, uh, distress needs to be individualized for each person and it's not. now it's just you have it or you don't. And I think um, we need to look at management. There's plenty of people who describe symptoms of gender dysphoria that they lived with before this was a thing and they worked at it. they grew out of it. And so I think that's really the key is is giving kids time and the tools to, to manage those feelings um, without giving them a, a pill or a, a, a surgical option. I don't think that should be on the table until they're 25. And I know that's not popular because 18 is supposedly a consenting adult, but, you know, those of us with 18 year olds can tell you that they're still children for quite a
2: while. They're baby adults.
0: Yes. And they still can't conceive of, of the, the outcomes for themselves. And I know Abigail Schreier came to our support group early on, right after her book came out and told us that she said 25, 25 is the, is the, is the number for people they 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 change their mind on a dime after going all the way. She said she's met people that have gone all the way. Um they get a boyfriend, they change their mind, something clicks. And so let's just give them that time to explore this.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the, and the brain doesn't finish developing until 25. Yeah, especially regions of the brain that are highly relevant here, like impulse control, emotion regulation, ability to plan and see into the future, right? Um uh, yeah, I mean, we have this conversation all day. We're having it all over the internet, right? About how kids this age aren't capable of of making, um, you know, good long term decisions. So, um, but that that's interesting the way you you clarify the law in California. I really appreciate that. I'm sure that our listeners in California will appreciate hearing that too, um, because that's very specific to say that that they cannot advertise or char- say that they'll charge money in exchange for changing. Someone's gender or sexuality. That, that's um, now that's very different from someone saying that they offer treatment for gender dysphoria. Right? Gender dysphoria means you're having distress about a perceived mismatch between your so-called gender identity and the sex of your body. So, if you're having distress about that, we would all argue that um, let's leave the sex of your body alone. <laughs> that, and maybe that's not the problem. Maybe the problem is the psychological distress. And there are any number of reasons that the psychological distress could have become fixated on this particular narrative, this particular issue, um, just in a, in a very similar way to how with obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, typically starts off with a, a person who's got higher than average levels of neuroticism, which means uh, tendency towards depression, anxiety, rumination, right? Um, So it's one of five of the big personality traits um, that, you know, you might hear Jordan Peterson or other clinical psychologists talking about the the big five personality traits. Traits, right? So we all have our sort of baseline set point vulnerability to neuroticism. Now there are things that can shift that, like having a meditation or mindfulness practice, exercise, um, and other positive activities can lower your overall neuroticism. But obsessive uh, compulsive disorder typically starts with someone with higher than average degrees of neuroticism and um, a lot of anxiety, and then that anxiety gets projected onto particular things, right? So it depends on the nature of the OCD, but. One common form, I know it's stereotypical, so I kind of hate to reinforce that because OCD can take many forms. But one form everybody knows about is the the germ obsession, right? So let's say that that is the obsession. Well, you know, for someone with that behavioral pattern, it could be that that what's really stressing them out could be any number of things. You know, it could be going on in their body chemistry. It could be stress in their relationships, something going on with work, something having to do with self-esteem. Um, and there's there's any number of things that could contribute to the anxiety. But rather than thinking about what are what are my real problems and what do I need to do about them, there becomes this behavioral pattern where the anxiety gets projected onto germs, right? So then the behavioral coping response gets projected onto germs. So then it's the hand washing or the the hygiene rituals. So it's it it ends up looking a lot like addiction where with addiction and and we could talk about addiction to alcohol or drugs, but we could also talk about it too, um, you know, with food or technology or, you know, other compulsive patterns where, um, you know, I notice when I talk to someone who has let's let's say an addictive relationship with food, someone who has, let's say, binge eating disorder and really struggles with their weight. Their mindset around food is if I'm happy, I want to celebrate by eating food. If I'm sad, I want to comfort myself by eating food. If I'm mad, I want to distract myself by eating food. Right. It's like no matter what the emotion is, no matter what the trigger situation is, it all all roads lead to Rome. It all flows in the direction of food. And the same thing's gonna be the way that someone relates to alcohol or whatever their addiction is, because you've trained your brain thousands of times over and over that if I have an emotion Uh uh-oh, that's scary, that's overwhelming, go to my coping mechanism. So I really think that the way a lot of young people are thinking about the trans stuff, as I hear it from their parents day in, day out, because I talk to parents of trans youth almost every single day, it really seems like it's kind of following that same pattern that you see with OCD or addiction, where there's an underlying distress, and then there's the interpretation of it, right? It must be about my gender identity. It must be about this. And now the thing I have to do to fix it is I have to pursue this affirmation or this next step in my transition process. And that's, what's going to alleviate my distress. And what's really tricky there is, is how far down the line you have to go before you find out that maybe that wasn't the source of your problems. Maybe that wasn't the solution. Well,
0: and seventy percent of the detransitioners in the Netherlands paper, seventy percent said that they realized that their gender dysphoria was related to something else. Now, that's a huge number. So that's exactly what you just described: is people thinking that was it, and then upon reflection, realizing that wasn't what was causing it. It was it was any number of other comorbidities. Um, and what we've noticed, and I'm sure uh, Josie can attest to this, is the the number of kids coming in, there's there's columns, they have autism spectrum disorder, they have sexual trauma, they have same sex attraction that they're grappling with. And I guess it's very common in gay and lesbian communities for kids in high school and maybe earlier to put on the persona of the opposite sex to sort of try it on. Um, but it was never meant to be permanent. You know, it, it's, it's it's identity play, which is totally normal. It's just they've medicalized and pathologized something that's totally normal. And and now it's, it's a different track. Um, and it's a perfect little basket to put all of your woes in because you don't have to work on any of the underlying conditions. You're trans and they'll fix it with surgery and hormones. Easy peasy. You know, that's the, the frustrating part is it, is it absolves everybody from guilt too. David Bell talked about this. The clinician from Tavistock is that parents buy into it because they don't have to look at what they might've done in the past to lead their kid to this point. They, they can just go, oh yeah, they're trans. Okay, well, let's fix it. It, it. it just absolves everybody from any investment in the actual underlying conditions.
1: I mean, I've always thought that it seemed like an addiction. Mm -hmm. I've always, it seems so obvious that that's what it is. Um, And unfortunately, it's like this magic pill being dangled for kids, that this will fix all your problems, but it won't. It will make your problems worse. And I know that uh, friends whose kids have desisted, their kids are happier than they've ever been.
2: Yeah. And I catch little glimpses of that in my work with these parents, you know, like just weeks of the summer, you know, we're we're recording this during the summer, right? And and a lot of kids are home from school and spending more time with their family outdoors, off of their phones. And they just, they're starting to feel more like themselves. So Josie, in the time that you've been uh, running the pit blog, what are some of the more Hopeful or encouraging or enlightening stories that you've come across, or any kind of trends you've noticed in what's helpful for families?
1: Well, I think what I've noticed is you know, being being empathetic with your child. Um, and I think it really helps if you had the information ahead of time. You know, like you knew this was going on. And you could just listen to your kid and, um, take your kid out of the environment is very helpful. It has worked for some parents and, but the problem is what works for some parents might not work for all parents. So every, every kid is different. Every situation is different, but, um, some parents have had amazing success, but I also think who their social social groups are and at school. Like my my son had a very um, cheerleader teacher, and if I think if he hadn't had that, things might have been different. So it just depends who you know. If you take them out of their environment take them off social media, which is very hard to do. People haven't had success with that. And just
0: delaying, you have to delay. you have to buy time and I think that some of the materials that we can provide people with when they register with us and come talk to us at our duty at least, and I think Pitt provides the same service is that you can you might read in one of the stories something that resonates with you that makes sense to you that might work for you. It's all about us communicating our successes and our failures and sort of weeding out the stuff that might pertain to you individually and using what you can because, you know, there isn't a playbook for this. Um, this is why this is so hard. It's, it's like there's nothing else that you can't get support for that to, we created our own support. And that's, thank God there were people that came before me because I had the same, you know, need of trying to find anything that looked familiar. And I found that And we've grown something really powerful. We just have to keep talking and, and explaining and telling our stories as much as possible.
2: So JG, tell us more about what you do at Our Duty.
0: Uh, just talking to parents and finding out what they need. And everybody's different. Like, like Josie said, um, it's, it's, it's about um, trying to figure out, you know, the, the number one thing that, that we explained to parents, which is something that Josie already touched on, was empathy. It's so easy to be afraid and be angry and scared. It, you have to remind yourself that they're, they're going through something. All these kids are going through something really profound. And they're really scared. And they're also angry and they're also still teenagers. And so trying to separate the behaviors is really complicated because some of it's just normal teenage behavior and some of it isn't. Um, and so I think that the the rapport and trust piece is really important. Um, and I think there's a lot of advice about this from a lot of different places. But the Sasha Ayad school of thought is to not make it a focus. Focus on the joy. Focus on the things that you guys used to do together. Try to let them lead a little and, and don't worry so much about what might happen, like live in the moment, which is very difficult because you're in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I have two years, I have one year, I have six months until they can X, Y, or Z, um, which in many cases is go to Planned Parenthood and get testosterone or estrogen, um, which is terrifying. So I think you just have to layer the time that you have with little seeds of doubt and, and, and understanding and empathy. But I think they need to know um, it's not about being transphobic. It's not about judging their identity, it's about knowing the truth about what this treatment is and it's experimental. And it's not evidence-based.
2: As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise but as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water, 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get twenty percent off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I do agree with Sasha on that, and part of part of how I've come to that position is through my work with parents. And um, you know, just to give listeners a little background, or to give you guys a little background, if, if anyone's just kind of getting caught up on this, I got thrown into this when I basically just came out as a public voice as a therapist who was concerned about the way that my field was treating gender related distress. And then I just started getting flooded with, you know, messages from parents. And so I just kind of jumped into it. Um, I, you know, with, um, facing threats for my licensing board last year, I had to stop working with, um, the youth, um, directly. And also I'm just too public. I I'm, I'm too Googleable. So that wouldn't work. But, um, I would say a large part of my counseling practice and, and, um, almost all of my consulting and coaching work, um, involves parents. And so, um, (laughs) I faced some criticism for how I've handled certain situations, but it's really like, I just jumped into this. I got thrown into this situation and I was just kind of doing my best to help. And I've, I've learned along the way, um, sort of making it up as I go and bringing in everything I, I know from my prior clinical experiences and seeing how I can apply it to the situation that parents find themselves in. And so through the last couple of years of, um, you know, just hearing from so many parents and interviewing a few on my podcast, but mostly having them as um, counseling and consulting clients, um, it's like there's this parallel process. That's, that's a term we use in therapy sometimes, right? Sometimes in therapy, we notice that there's something going on in our client's life and like we're, we're mirroring that in our, our feelings toward our patient, like it's showing up in the therapy room. There's a similar thing that happens with the obsession that teens develop with the trans stuff. And then the obsession their parents develop with trying to rescue their kids from the trans stuff. And so everybody in the house is just thinking gender, gender, gender all the time, night and day. And it's like you forget that you are a whole person who had a life before this, which is so important to remember because if you're over 30, Um, You do remember a a world before this was at the front of everyone's minds all the time, right? And um, probably there there were things, there were memories you had with your family. There were things you once did for joy and pleasure and recreation and meaning and purpose that had nothing to do with this, right? So- so I talk about it how um, sometimes this gender ideology stuff can kind of feel like a black hole where everything, it just has such this strong gravitational pull that you constantly feel like you're on that event horizon where everything in your life can get sucked into it. And so resisting that is, is maintaining your strength, maintaining the sense that life is not all about this. It certainly hasn't always been this way. It won't be this way in the future if you're going to have anything to do with it. There is life beyond this, and not everything has to be gendered. And that's really grounding for you as a parent in terms of keeping your own oxygen mask on um, and you know, remembering this is a marathon, not a sprint. So you're going to have to take care of yourself. Um, and it's grounding to your kids because these kids are so steeped in these ideas that they they have some really bizarre, like everything becomes, I mean, I've heard of the most innocuous toys being associated with trans stuff. I have heard of, um, you know, kids saying things that were very reliant on like 1950s type stereotypes about like feminine versus masculine or girl stuff or guy stuff. Um, and so for you as a parent (laughs) and, and, God willing, the rest of your family too, to maintain a foot in reality, to have interests where um, those interests don't make you more or less of a man or a woman, right? (laughs) Like whether you're a mom that's into kayaking or hunting or baseball or um, traditional girly stuff, whatever it is, like not everything has to be gendered. Right. And these kids need that space to find themselves and find where they naturally actually fit, not just what's going to make them fit in with their peers or what phase they're going through, but where they naturally would fall if they were free of social pressures to identify a particular way, like how naturally kind of feminine or masculine your kid would really be or their interests would really be. And to know that it's okay to have those interests or to have that personal style and that it doesn't mean you have to change your whole identity. And go by a different name and inject yourself with drugs and shorten your lifespan. So, I absolutely agree with Sasha Ayad. Like, don't let everything be about this. And I call parents out. When I work with parents, I have very good relationships with the parents I work with, and they come to me for my honesty. And so, I say with so much love and respect, I will call them out when they took the bait, you know, when they took an opportunity to have a conversation with their kid or share some quality time with their kid that could have been just about the card game or whatever they were doing. And instead the parent was so obsessed with the gender issue that they were like, so is this what you think makes you trans?" You know, like the parent brings it up <laughs> and I'm like, now, now you could have had a moment of quality time. And because the thing is, ultimately you have no control over how far your kid is going to, to, to go down this path. You can, you can try to play your cards right to support them with developing a healthy sense of self-esteem just as they are not feeling the need to modify their body. You can try and you can work on the things that are going to maintain the relationship with your kid, but you ultimately don't know how far they're going to go down that path, nor at what point they may desist or detrans. And so let's say that your kid does take several steps down that path and then they regret it when they're 27 and that's when they turn around. Well, you're going to want them to have had some life experiences. Like even if, heaven forbid, there is some bodily damage that they regret and have to suffer the consequences of, still, you're going to want your kid to have something to come home to in themselves that was not completely eaten away by the gender stuff, right? That's what those memories are for. And I've talked with detransitioners who had an interest, at least, like some creative pursuit that they were doing the whole time they were trans-identified. That they got to come back to or maintain through their detransition where they're like, at least I still have this thing, this thing, like I thought that my gender identity was related to this art form, but I see like, I've always been an artist right? And I don't, this has nothing to do with my gender. And for some, for some it's too painful, right? For some, their previous interests remind them of the time that they were trans and they feel like they have to cut themselves off from it completely. But still, you're going to want to take advantage of any time that you have available as a parent with your child, because that time is so precious, to give them a life that's not just all about this. And that is going to form the foundation of their self-esteem, of their genuine competence. I think- it's going to give them something to come back to. If they do need to desist or detransition down the line, it's like at least not, at least their whole sense of self isn't based on gender, right? And it gives them the roots of competence because I think a lot of these kids are using gender as a shield, especially I say it with the girls, you know, this like the swagger <laughs> that one of you mentioned earlier that they adopt, um, the sort of uh, masculine identity that they adopt is like a, a shield of a tough guy that can face the world that isn't weak and vulnerable and isn't going to be sexually exploited and isn't going to be made fun of like the bullies made fun of them in sixth grade, right? <laughs> um, so it's like they construct this alter ego to take the place of having to um, have a fully formed personality, which they don't have yet. So they, they like to hide behind this alter ego. Um, but you know, the more of a genuine sense of competence you have based on lived experience, the less you feel the need to hide behind a co- an alter ego. So why not give your kids that, right? Even if they're still using whatever pronouns with their friends and stuff that you can't control, at least you can have those experiences with them where they're they're getting good at archery or they're getting good at painting cars or whatever the heck it might be.
0: Agree. And that's advice. I shouldn't say advice. That's what I say to some parents is like, think of something that like the whole, the whole needed to be filled and, and it was filled with gender. So think about yes. for the future, when the gender has gone, you have to have something to replace it with. And, and that's not up to the parent to decide necessarily, but it might be good for them to think on those terms that like, it's about filling the hole with something that's more wholesome and more sustainable and, you know, longer term. Um, but I think it's just hard to see, hard to find what that looks like. And I think going to the past is a really good idea.
1: Well, like for me, uh my son was engaged in all these activities and sports. He was an athlete. And when gender came, he gave it all up. So it was really hard to get him to go back to stuff. So I know a lot of people give the advice, you know, do sports, do this. And I'm like, "Well, he gave it all up." And so it's really it was very hard to get him back into anything so i know it's a struggle um but it does help but i think taking them out of their environment also helps a great deal you know going on a huge family trip if you can
2: um and just get them off the phone It's so tough, um, especially with the sports thing, because physical activity is, we all know, so good for your mental health, self-esteem, social skills. But but there is this body dysmorphia component where boys who think they're girls or want to pass as girls don't want to develop muscle, right? And then like, you know, girls end up wanting, you know, sometimes girls have eating disorders or trying to starve themselves so that they don't have their feminine body fat. Um, so it can be really hard to get kids to behave in ways that are physically healthy because they're telling themselves this lie. Well, I can't get comfortable in my body because I don't look like this. And no, I don't want to be athletic. And no, I don't want to look in it. And so some kids are going to benefit from going back to things that they loved before. And some kids are going to be benefit from finding some new interests. And, and maybe you play a role in that as a parent and um, help them find what those new things are or maybe not. But like it's like you're what you're saying it all comes down to at the end of the day more time in the real world and outdoors less time on screens more quality time and more of life just being about life not everything being wrapped up in gender and that's for your own sanity as a parent as well yeah so oh, sorry you were about to say well,
0: I, I was reminded in the very beginning I know that a lot of kids go online and they take these gender tests and they they're told you know if you if you oh sorry they're told a lot of kids go online uh, early on and they go and they, they take these gender tests and it tells them if they're a man or a woman. Um, just for the record, I'm a man. Um, oh, I yeah, me tests. too. Okay.
2: If you Good. Google, am I trans and take the quiz? Yep. And like, spoiler alert, you're all trans, right?
0: Well, there's also yeah. the if you even think you are, then you are. And I think that mm-hmm. really was powerful for a lot of people early on. I think that has been dispelled a little bit as time has gone on. Um, but that seemed to be the one thing that was the hook for people. Um, was like, oh, like it's the done deal. And I think that's, that's obviously changing a lot. Um, but I have found just pointing out the absurdities of gender stereotypes in passing, not even with regard to me or my kid or my family, but just it's silly to think that because I wear pants, that makes me non-binary or because I like to fix things that that makes me a male. Like that's silly. So we do have to, like you just said, we have to encourage them to embody themselves as they are, regardless of how they identify, like that's the least interesting thing about you.
1: But is for parents, you know, it's a really tough place to be. I mean, you just whole world has fallen apart and it's really hard not to be depressed, L- lose yourself. And so I have found doing this blog and helping parents has really helped me. It gives me a purpose. It gives me something. To live for, and I I know that um, Gigi's activism has helped her. Um, so we do encourage parents to try and do something to help yourself, so you can help your kid. Because if you're happy and you're doing okay, it helps your kid look at that and think, oh well, this. My parents are okay, so maybe I should be too. You know, I know how easy it is to just be. Just lose yourself over this. I just really encourage people to write. I encourage people to, if you think of something to do that might be helpful, then do it. Because you know, as Erin Friday will say, no one's coming to help you. There's what does she say? What's her <laughs> she saying?
0: Did. She she did. The cavalry is not coming. You are the cavalry. Like we are. Right. We are our own rescuers.
2: And Josie, so, I've seen what you're saying from personal experience. It really seems like the families I work with that are doing the best are the ones that are able to keep a light heart through the midst of all this. The ones that are able to maintain a sense of humor and playfulness, my goodness, that gets you so far. And I, I have heard families report back these breakthrough moments with their kids where they were able to respond uh, with levity to something that they'd been fighting over for for months or even years. Right. So when you yourself are well, <laughs> when when you are staying well enough that you can laugh at some of this stuff and and, you know, sometimes depending on the nature of your relationship with your kid, that's going to be like, huh, that's ridiculous, sweetie. What on earth are you talking about? Right. But it's it's the tone. Right. That that can bring your kids back. Whereas, you know, the same. That's ridiculous. What on earth are you talking about? Is going to land so differently. So a lot of it does come come back to self-care. And I know that's that's no easy feat given the situation that, that you find yourselves in. So I'm aware of the time. Um, any any closing thoughts before I ask where people can find your work?
0: Uh, I guess keep talking. And I I've said this every time I've talked to anyone. Just please keep talking. Any moments you have out in the world where you and and I found asking a question is a much better approach. What do you What do you think about? What do you think about? You know, Chloe Cole, or what do you think about? The, the, the school board decision that they voted, they just voted yesterday to in California to um, not keep secrets from parents. And it brought up a, a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of different opinions. Um, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's about gender or it's about something else like parents shouldn't parents and children should not be divided by this. And I think that's what's happening. And so we need to remind ourselves that we have to keep asking questions and talking about this. And I think that's really the key is that it allows other people and gives them permission to do the same.
2: By the way, Gigi, I did not know about that. That's fantastic. And the fact that that happened in California, I think is really encouraging. So um, you, you said that pretty uh, quickly and quietly. So just for anyone who didn't hear that, what I heard is they voted in California for the schools to not keep secrets one, from parents. One school district. One school board. Oh, one yeah. school, In Chino. One school
0: board. And so, so okay. it's created a whole fervor as to whether or not the governor, who's punishing another school for not accepting a specific curriculum, with a $1.5 million penalty. It, it it depends on how the state is going to deal with it. I hope they're going to give the school boards their own autonomy because I think that's the whole point. But yes, it, it was good because one one place, Bill Asaley was our guy and he got it done. It's a policy. So they voted yes.
1: And the policy is that parents have the right to be included? It would, What is it exactly? Well, it
0: was a bunch of different aspects of it. It was if they're injured, if they're suicidal, if they get into a fight, if they're being bullied, and if they change their gender identity, you have to tell the parents within 72 hours that this is happening. You cannot keep that secret because like I said before, socially transitioning is not something they can do by themselves. And no one has their best interests more than their parents. And to assume that teachers know better is absurd. And so I think it's just a matter of leading by example. So we just have to keep doing that.
2: And we didn't get into this discussion today, but one very pertinent topic is sort of the myth of the bigoted parent and this this idea that there are just all these horrible, horrible parents out there in the world. I mean, look, parenting is hard and a lot of people bring their own trauma and baggage and busyness and stress into it. Like, very few p- caring parents would would claim to be flawless humans, but, um, but like parental love is real. And, and most parents are the best people to be raising their own children. And so, um, you know, this myth of the unsupported family um, has, has been used to justify so much wrongdoing. And I just want to bring it back to the truth that you, if you're a teacher, if you work in the schools, you're a mandated reporter. If you have reason to believe that a child's being abused or neglected at home, Put your money where your mouth is and call CPS. I'm a therapist. I do it when I have to do it, right? But if if you're not ready to come out and say, "Here's what I've heard from this kid, or what I've seen that's made me think they are seriously being abused or neglected, and the intervention is warranted," then no, you don't have a place keeping secrets from the parents. So well, I like they to don't kind of have a
1: license up. to do that. And how are these teachers going to feel when they push the kid down a medical path and then they detransition? They took the power away
0: from the parent. Well, and that's another thing that I'd like to add before we wrap up, if we are wrapping up, that one of the conversations I had with a parent who did go to the Transforming Families meeting in Los Angeles and did join the ranks of the affirming parents, um, I had jokingly said at some point, like, oh, they took the easy way out. And she was really angry with me. And she said, no, it's not easy. It's actually just as hard. It's just different. The fear in that room was palpable that these parents are going against their own instincts, they are burying their doubts and their red flags that are waving in their faces, and they're embracing something because they're scared, because the suicide trope or all the reasons that people get manipulated into this. And so I would say to parents, trust your gut. That's all we've got. Trust your gut. And if you feel like this isn't the right thing for your kid, look for other resources because they're out there.
2: Thank you for that, Gigi. All right. So Gigi, we'll start with you. Where can people find you and your work and how can they get involved in our duty?
0: We are, uh, on the internet. Um, our slash USA is the USA branch, but we have an international presence in, um, England and Canada and uh, Australia and New Zealand. And, um, I think we're going to do one in the, in South America. We're getting some more people calling from South America. So we're working on that. Um, go to the website. There's lots of information. There's downloads to send to doctors. There's statistics. Um, and we, we encourage you to embrace the conversations with your pediatricians and doctors and just ask them what they think, because a lot of the promotion of this is coming from ignorance. It's not coming from evil. It's coming from the assumption that the AAP is doing the right thing by backing this, and the assumption that the American Medical Association is in the right, they're not. They're ideologically captured and ignoring evidence coming out of other countries. And so it's our job to educate them in the best sense of the word and give everyone the same information from which to glean their own um, their own opinions. And I think it's impossible to look at the statistics and not have some questions. And so, you know, please join us if you're a therapist. We are Connecting Therapists' regionally and locally who may not want to be public we can keep it, your information private um if you want to get involved legally erin needs lots of help in sacramento there are horrible bills in california and a bunch of other states and we can set you up with activism opportunities if that's what you're into but um the support group is really the biggest piece i think for parents and we can also connect you with that as well
2: oh the support group yep yeah. Tell us about the support group. The support group isn't
0: us. We channel to a, an, an existing support group that sort of stays below the radar because they, they don't need vilification. And um, But we can connect you with them and that's thousands of parents. There's one in every state. Um, sometimes they meet for, with Zoom. It's parents of ROGD kids and, and they're a wonderful organization that's been around a lot longer than we have. Um, and they have a really foundational um, way of, of just meeting regularly and giving parents an outlet to not feel so alone.
2: That's great to hear. All right, Josie, tell us where people can find you and Pitt. Um,
1: You can find Pitt at pitt.substack.com. And you. It's Pitt with two T's. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Pitt.substack.com. And um, you can email me at pitt, pitt at genspec.org. I'm on Twitter at pittparents. And, um, I just want parents to take care of themselves first and writing is a really great outlet. And if you have a story to share, please send it to me. Email pit at genspec.com.org. Dot org. Oh, (laughs) sorry.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Okay, great. Gigi, did you have any social media handles you wanted to share? Um,
0: I'm on Twitter at Gigi LaRue four. Um, and, um, that's about it. That's, I mean, I found early on that Twitter was the only place you could really get access to information. Um,
2: does our duty have a Twitter handle?
0: They do. It's our, it's our duty. You can, it's pretty easy At to search our duty.
2: Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you both so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit SomeTherapist.com. Or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at SomeKindOfTherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.